Welcome back and Happy New Year. We continue with the Master's Manifesto. In the last podcast, prior to our two-week Christmas and New Year break, we talked about the blessedness of the merciful and how they will also receive mercy. A mercy which grows out of a relationship with God. We now move to the next character principle of the sermon. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. May you walk in the spiritual subsequently. We return to our study of the Master's Manifesto in Matthew chapter 5. And I want to draw your attention to verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. With this statement of our Lord, we face one of the greatest utterances in the whole of Scripture. And of course, we could never exhaust this one verse. It stretches into so many themes and so many realities. We are only going to try to discover its central meaning, a long way from exhausting the riches that are here. I encourage you to do further study of this great statement. As we have done all the way through the study of the Beatitudes, we are asking and answering key questions which allow us to get at the heart of what our Lord is saying. What is the context of these words? First of all, at the time of Jesus, Christ coming into the world, Israel was in a desperate condition. Politically, Israel had lost its freedom and was under the bondage of the Roman Empire. Economically, Israel was struggling because the Romans had exerted exorbitant and actually criminal taxes from the people so that the people were having to give up much of what they worked hard to earn in unfair taxation. Spiritually, Israel was also in great trouble. We want to focus here on the spiritual element because that's what the Beatitude addresses. From the spiritual side, the people of Israel were burdened by the oppressive authority of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the dominating religionists of the time. They were the ones who had misinterpreted the law of Moses as something that was in itself a legal code which could attain salvation. They had, in addition to the law of Moses, added myriad other laws and rules and ordinances that really composed and then imposed a relentless, rigid system of duties on the people which really were impossible to perform. Consequently, the people were unable to live up to the existing religious requirements of their time. That left them feeling oppressed, it left them feeling frustrated, it left them feeling guilty. Perhaps the reason that John the Baptist had such a wide and phenomenal response to his ministry. You remember that all of Israel was going out to the Jordan River to hear him. He didn't have a press agent. He didn't have a press release process. He didn't do radio, television advertising. And yet the whole nation went out to hear John the Baptist. And in part, it may well have been due to the fact that he was preaching about sin. He was preaching about repentance and people were feeling guilty 
over their inability to keep the law system that had been imposed on them. They were afraid and fearful that because of their inability to keep the law, they were therefore liable to be shut out of the kingdom of God. They feared being excluded from the kingdom, and that may well have contributed to their eagerness to hear this man who was preaching about sin and repentance. They were crying for a redeemer in every one of those areas, and God had long before promised them a redeemer. The hope was treasured up in their hearts that that redeemer would come. Finally, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah, the prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets, came and started preaching that the Messiah was coming and it was time to get your heart ready so that you would not be shut out of his kingdom. Messiah was coming and it was time to acknowledge your sin and repent of your sin and receive an available forgiveness and ready your heart for the Redeemer and for his kingdom. The people didn't want to miss out on the kingdom. They didn't want to miss out on eternal life. They didn't want to miss out on all that God had prepared for his people through the Messiah. For example, Nicodemus, who was the teacher in Israel, according to John chapter 3, the nagging question at the heart of Nicodemus was, what is the righteous standard for salvation? What must I do to be saved? To put it in the language borrowed from another, how can I be right with God? How can I be accepted by God? That was what was on this man's heart. And I don't think he was alone. I think a lot of the Jewish people were asking that same question. Later on, Jesus was addressing a crowd in the sixth chapter. That crowd that he fed, and it says in verse 28, that the crowd said to him, what shall we do that we may walk the works of God? There again was that same nagging reality, that something is wrong in our lives. There is sin, there is guilt, there is a striking wound that our conscience lays on us. We fear that our sin may separate us from God. Several different scenarios, but the same question. God is holy. They knew that. God is righteous. God had established a righteous standard, his law, and we violate it. And try as we do, we cannot keep it. What is the condition that we must attain in order to enter into the presence of a holy God? How are we to be saved from our sin? How are we to be assured of eternal life? How are we to make it into God's kingdom? Believe me, this is the question that would be most in the minds of the crowds on the Galilean hillside as Jesus taught these Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. This would be the nagging question in the minds of his listeners. He had gone out, he had gone about all Galilee now. By this time, teaching in the synagogues, he had gone about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He had gone about healing all manner of diseases. His fame had spread everywhere. And finally, this massive crowd gathers and their hearts are basically burdened with this one great question. What kind of righteousness must we have in order to be accepted into God's kingdom? What kind of righteousness must we attain in order to be in God's eternal heaven? 
that was on their hearts. What does God require of us? And it is that question of the heart that Jesus answers in the Beatitude. How good does a man have to be? What is required? What is the standard? Here it is in verse 8. Blessed are the poor in, in are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is necessary in order to see God? What is necessary is a pure heart. That was powerful. That was frankly a shocking statement. People then, like people now, tend to measure themselves by their fellow men. And especially the Pharisees love to do this, to compare themselves with others, thus assess themselves to be better than others, and therefore hopefully acceptable to God. Typically, when someone desires to test his character and see his own virtue, when someone desires to test his ethics and to test his morals, to build up his pride and feel good about himself and feel confident, he inevitably measures himself by some inferior human being. It's inevitable. He can always find someone lower than he is or she is. So if you do it on the human level, then the highest, stand, the highest standard is the worst person. When you measure yourself against that standard, you can survive with your pride and your self-esteem intact. But the fact of the matter is, it's not the lowest person in the world that is the standard. It's God, the highest being in the universe, the highest, the holiest, the sinless God of the ages is the standard. When God sets the standard for righteous character, he sets it at his own level. So the Lord answers the question of the people by saying that only the pure in heart will see God's kingdom. Only the pure in heart will know God. Only the pure in heart will inherit eternal life. Only the pure in heart will be saved. For they alone attain God's standards. This is the key beatitude, somebody might say. Well, if this is the key one, why doesn't it come first? Why do we have all these preliminary beatitudes starting here in verse 3 because this is the sort because this is sort of the pinnacle this is sort of the centerpiece this is the main jewel and you walk your way to it you start out as you note in verse 3 with poor in spirit recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy then you moan over your condition and then you are gentle or better translated, meek and humble because of that condition. And then you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Then you are granted mercy so that you can become pure in heart, which is to then have received the righteousness that God requires. So the word of the Lord really does fit into the flow of the Beatitudes. It is the pure in heart then that become the peacemakers in verse 9. It is the pure in heart in verse 10 who are persecuted. It is the pure in heart in verse 11 who are insulted, persecuted, 
against whom all kinds of evil are spoken falsely. It is the pure in heart, verse 13, who are the salt of the earth. It is the pure in heart, verse 14, who are the light of the world. So really, we walk our way up to this magnificent statement. Now, the word blessed here, we've been translating it as the word happy or joyful. But we want to define what we mean by that. We are not talking about something that is superficial. Perhaps a good translation of blessed to add to the other ones that I've given is to say it is a condition of well-being, spiritual well-being resulting from salvation. Well-being is a good way to translate, translate it. Spiritual prosperity, prosperous are the pure in heart. Jesus just tore the external base system down to, to the ground with that one statement. He just dismantled any external approach to God by saying that the only people who will ever enter God's kingdom, the only people who will ever experience eternal life, who will ever see God, are those who are pure on the inside. That must have just struck like a sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. Had the Jews even themselves failed to realize the implication and the facts of the Old Testament, such as Psalm 51, 6, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. Or Hosea 6, I desire, I delight not in the sacrifice, but in loyalty or obedience. Or man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Who, who's going to see God? Who has the right to attain this holy hill? Who has the right to go into his presence? Those who have been given his righteousness and been cleansed on the inside by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit of God. The prophet, the prophet Ezekiel wrote it this way. Ezekiel 36, 25. God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. God has to wash your heart. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I'll go even beyond that. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is a promise of new covenant regeneration. That's new birth. That's transformation. That's sanctification. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I, gi that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I'll be your God. Moreover, I'll save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it. I will not bring a famine 
on you. No more judgment. The kingdom has always belonged to the hearts that are pure. It has always belonged to those that have been cleansed. And even in, Christ in Christianity in our time, it's not any different. We have those people who have a head religion. We have those people who have been raised in a ceremonial religion, who have, who had nagging guilt, shame, fear, doubt, and anxiety. They go to their various churches. They go through their various motions. They want to know how to get into the kingdom. They want to know what is required. They think they perhaps could attain it, and they live with the guilt of falling short until finally, in God's mercy and grace, he broke them under the weight of their own sin and they cry out to him. Poor in spirit, mourning and meek, they tell him of their hunger and thirst for righteousness. He pours out mercy upon them and purifies their heart so that they can see him. God calls for a heart religion. 1 Peter 1.16 says, You shall be holy for I am holy. That's the standard. Nobody meets the standard. What do you do about it then? We have a problem. We need a redeemer. We need a righteousness, not ours. You need a purity, not your own. You need a God who will grant you righteousness that belongs to him and then give you a new heart. And so 1 Peter 1.18 says, that's what God has done. You were redeemed. You were brought back out of sin, not with perishable things like silver or gold. Verse 19 says, with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Verse 22 says, you have in obedience to the truth of Christ, the gospel, purified your souls. You've been born again through the imperishable living and abiding word of God. That's what it takes. Now let's look at, let's look further and define our terms. What is really involved in being pure of heart? Let's talk about the heart for a moment. Cardia, from which we get our English word cardiac. The Greek word cardia simply means the heart. The Lord goes right for the issue here. The most religious in Israel and the most religious today, as far as society is concerned, are those who make the most religious effort externally. And the Pharisees led the parade. They were always washing their hands, washing their pots and pans, and they were always walking on the outside and ignoring the inside. They were tithing everything down to the smallest seed possible. They were going through their ritualistic prayers they ignored love, justice, and truth, as the Lord pointed out. They had substituted the traditions of men for the commandments of God. And Jesus said this, is not all about what you do on the outside. This goes right to the heart, the center of your person. What is the heart? Well, it's a muscle. We look at it physiologically. But... We see it more than that. We talk about loving someone with all our heart. That's sort of a strange thing to say. We don't say we love 
someone with our kidneys or our liver. I don't know how we landed on that, except we've inherited this sort of Hebrew idea that the heart is the source of life because it pumps the fluid of life through our bodies. The heart is used in scripture really most commonly to refer to the mind, the thinking part of us. It does involve emotion, which is a part of thought, but it's the source of personhood. It's sort of a symbol of our inner person. As we think in our heart, the Bible says, so are we. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. That's the best Old Testament def definition of the heart. The heart is that part of us from which all the issues of life arise. Doing the will of God from the heart, that's from the inner person, the inner being. The heart is the so source of all the best and worst of us because the heart is really the inner person. The heart, before it deceitful, the heart, therefore, is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? said the prophet Jeremiah. In Genesis, God said, Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, he was speaking of man, was only evil continually. So the heart is what thinks and feels. The heart is our person, our inner person. And so what the Lord is saying in this beatitude is before you ever see me, there's going to have to be a substantial change at the core of your being. It's not all about religion. It's not all about the outside. It's all about the inside. It's all about a total dramatic change in the inner person. The problem is right at the heart. That's why David, after his great scene in Psalm 51, 10 said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. I want a clean heart. David was that man after God's own heart. Psalm 9, Psalm 19, 26, Psalm 27, Psalm 28, you see it there. What was David's secret? Psalm 57, 7 says, My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. You've given me a new heart and it's set on you. Psalm 16 says, I've set the Lord always before me, therefore my heart is glad. What about the word pure? What is pure talking about? It's the word katharos. The word katharos comes from the Greek verb katharizo, which means to cleanse from filth and impurity. That's what it means. It means, in a moral sense, to be free from the defilement of sin. It's akin to the Latin castos, which is the root of the English chaste. And when we talk about something being cathartic, people go through a catharsis. A catharsis is a cleanser. It's from catharizo. Something that is cathartic is a medicine that is an agent used for purifying, for cleansing. So what we are talking about are people who have been cleansed. Those who have had their inner inside cleansed. And that's exactly what salvation does. So what God is looking for, 
So what is God looking for? He's looking for people who have had their heart cleaned, who have the core of their nature regenerated, who have had that old stony heart taken out, that old sinful, rebellious core taken out and placed in a new heart. They've been washed. Jeremiah 32, God says, I'll give them one heart and they'll fear me forever. That's what God is after, pure hearts. Jesus preached this. Jesus preached that a man needed to have a single heart, a pure heart, in the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 21 of Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where is your heart? You can't serve God and money. Singleness of heart was what he had in mind. And this is all through the New Testament. As you live your Christian life, you continue to cry out, as David did, that God would keep that heart clean and pure. Let's ask another question. When we talk about purity in the heart, what are we really talking about? How many kinds of purity are there? Well, there are a number that we can talk about. First of all, let's call the first one primitive purity. And we'll address this briefly. Primitive purity. Theologians might use that to express that purity which is in God originally. In other words, it is that purity that is essential to the nature of God as light is to the sun, as wet is to water. That's not innate to us. We do not have primitive purity. We have primitive impurity. But, pu but primitive purity refers to that purity which is in God originally. Secondly, there is created purity. And created purity would be that purity which God places in his creature and certainly did in the creation of angels and men. Originally, the angels were created as pure, and so were Adam and Eve. We participate in neither of those. We who have been born of Adam after the fall know only impurity in our natural state. Thirdly, there is what we could call ultimate purity. That is that purity which will belong to the saints in glorification. There is coming a time when we will be glorified and then we will bear an essential kind of purity. We will in fact be like Christ. We will be conformed to his own image. We will share his holiness. Fourthly, there is imputed purity. This is purity granted to every believer at the point of salvation. This is what we mean by imputed righteousness or justification, where God imputes to us the very righteousness of Christ. We become the righteous, righteousness of God in him. Paul in Philippians 3 says, I don't have a righteousness of my own, but that which is of God, given to me through faith in Christ. Now to see God does not require primitive purity or none of us would ever see God, for we were born in sin. It does not require created purity because we who are born of Adam after the fall 
have no creative purity. It does not require ultimate and perfect purity personally that, equ that equals that of Christ because that is unattainable to us. But it does require imputed purity by faith in Christ and God granted us that purity. But then there's another purity that we could, that we could call regenerational purity. That is the purity which is worked in us through the new birth. It shows up in holy longings and holy aspirations and the love of the law of God and the love of worship and the love of Christians and the love of the service of God, the hope of glory. Blessed are those, blessed meaning happy, content, fulfilled, satisfied, joyful, and in a state of spiritual well-being and prosperity are those who are pure in heart. We have been given the purity imputed to us in justification. We have been given the purity imparted to us in regeneration. And we await the purity which will become essential to us in glorification. Isn't this great? In the meantime, we walk on another kind of purity. We throw, we'll throw another one in. Practical purity. Cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7.1 We separate ourselves from sin as we endeavor to live out a practical purity. Leads me to a third question. What is the promise attached to this purity? The answer in verse 8, they shall see God. They themselves perennially and continually shall see God. First of all, for the Jews, seeing God was a frightening thing. Do you know any, anybody in the Old Testament that saw God and lived? Only one or two or three maybe. And they didn't see the full glory of or they would never have survived. Moses saw the veiled glory. Isaiah saw a portion of it. Ezekiel saw some. But to see God was life-threatening and deadly. Even to see a king is quite remarkable. And again, I think this was directed at the hearts of the people. But it really was the hard cry to be in the kingdom and see the king. And God says, you will see me if you've had your heart cleansed. When your heart was cleansed, the sight was immediate. We see God, don't we? Through the eye of faith. We see God in all his glory through the revelation of scripture. Someday, we'll see the blazing glory of the light of God in eternal splendor. Someday, we'll see Jesus face to face in his glorified form. But until that time, we see him with the eye of faith. We see God in history. We see God in circumstances. We see God in creation. We see God in providence. We see God most clearly in revelation in the scripture. And the verb here is used figuratively. Seeing God in the sense of knowing God, of being aware of his presence and power. When the disciples said to Jesus, show us the father, he answered them by saying, have I been so long with you and you still don't know? You've been seeing the Father. You see purifying 
The soul cleanses the vision of the soul so that we see God. What happens in the darkness is turned to light and the blindness is turned to sight and the purifying of the heart cleanses the vision of the soul. And all of a sudden you see God. You see him in circumstances. You see him in the scriptures. You see him walking in the lives of people around you. But someday you will see him face to face in all his glory. In closing, what are the signs of a pure heart? What are the signs? You can think them through yourself. One, integrity and sincerity. One in whose spirit there is no deceit. In, an, in other words, there is a real longing for righteousness, a real love for Christ and for God. Secondly, a hunger for greater purity. If you have a pure heart, it is dissatisfied with present sin because it's against the grain of your new nature. Thirdly, a hatred for sin. Psalm 119.104, the psalm it says, I hate every false way. Fourthly, a love for others who know the Lord. A love for other believers. Love out of a pure heart. First Timothy says, and I think just one other thought. Being preoccupied with God. Living in awe of God. Living a worshipping life longing for his will to be fulfilled, for his glory to come. That's it. It's not hard to define the indications of a pure heart. Integrity or sincerity, hunger for greater purity, a hatred for sin, a love for other believers, and a preoccupation with God's glory and God's honor. That is what it is to be pure in heart. And these are they who see God. I will see next time. These are the ones who become the peacemakers. Thank you. Let's pray. Thank you for these dear friends who have listened to this podcast. Walk in each heart your perfect will for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.